then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The 12 asked him. Perhaps they thought that it was an innocent question born out of simple curiosity. Jesus had talked so much about the kingdom of God, and they knew after all this time that they could ask him the questions they wanted to ask. But sometimes our questions reveal the truth about where our hearts actually are, and I think this one did. Perhaps the disciples were struggling with comparison. There were 12 of them after all, and three of them had just been taken up on this special trip to the top of a mountain. And when they'd come down, Peter, James, and John had refused to tell anyone about what had happened up on the top of the mountain. But the other nine, they weren't dumb. They knew by the looks on their faces that whatever had happened was remarkable. Then Jesus talked again about how he was going to die, and all of them were probably just confused. You see, Jesus, he was full of ideas about this kingdom. He talked about it being like a mustard seed, like a hidden treasure, like a sower planting good seeds. But when it came down to it, the disciples had no idea what it was actually going to look like. And they were limited not just by the parables Jesus had told, but they were also limited by two different blueprints that had been stamped into them about what a kingdom was supposed to look like. I mean, they grew up in Jewish culture, so the kingdom of David was the kingdom that they knew the best. It was God's kingdom, but it had a hierarchy. I mean, David may have been loved by God because of his humility, but let's be honest, he was loved by his people because God gave him success. And then on the other side, they had the Roman dog-eat-dog, fight-for-your-rights, Jews-come-last-kingdom that also had a hierarchy one that changed frequently and it oppressed people consistently. And that was their framework. So when Jesus talked metaphorically, even poetically, about what the kingdom of God was like, there was very little that the disciples could practically compare it to because kingdoms that they knew had hierarchies. We're no different. All of our kingdoms have hierarchies too. Think about it. The one who's the smartest gets the reward. The one who acts the best and keeps their composure the longest wins. The one who climbs the fastest is the one who makes it to the top. The one who dies with the most things wins. And as much as we balk at thoughts like this and can confidently reason our way out of them, we still live by them. We still feel our pride either fed or starved by the hierarchies of our own kingdoms. And because of that, it just seemed pretty natural that the question that was on the disciples' mind was, who was going to be Jesus' right-hand man when it was all said and done? Who was going to get the biggest honor? Who was going to be the one with the biggest crown and the most jewels? The question the disciples asked Jesus revealed everything about their hearts and probably reveals a little bit about yours and mine. Because the question they were really asking, the question beneath the question was, How can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 18. We'll start reading at verse 2. Jesus responds to them. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name 
welcomes me. You see, Jesus sees through the question the disciples were asking and surprises them in two different ways with his answer. First, he says, unless you change, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have made all of the disciples kind of stand at attention because they thought they were already in. Wait, what do you mean, unless we change, we won't even enter the kingdom of heaven? In some sense, Jesus is saying, hey, stop worrying about being the greatest. Can you even fit through the door? <laughs> Other translations of the word use the word convert instead of change, but the literal translation of the Greek is turn around. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be the greatest? You're not even going in the right direction with that question. But the second surprise is probably more significant. You see, it would have been very expected for a rabbi of that day to answer a question like this with a list of requirements to ensure personal holiness for his disciples. Things like doing good works, things like keeping even the finest minutia of the law, knowing and meditating on the holy scriptures, tithing. I mean, Jesus' disciples might have even thought he would have thrown a couple of extra things in the list, like being able to perform miracles or healings. But Jesus responds with no list. He calls a child to himself and he says, become a child. Become a child. Now, before you think that this is a super sweet cherub-like moment, you know, where there's this little kid sitting on Jesus' knee, we have to frame the scandalous nature of this moment. Because children were the bottom rung of society in Jesus' day. Now today, parents are determined to like nurture the psychological framework and understanding of their kids, okay? The identity of our kids as they grow up is super important. But back then, kids were commonly referred to as it until they went through puberty. We don't even call our dogs it. Child mortality was high. Kids couldn't contribute to society or their households. They were drains, and they were treated like that. Some scholars actually think this is the only time in ancient Jewish literature that children are used as positive examples. Some might even say all of ancient literature. Particularly girls, who eventually would cost their family a dowry, were even lower than the low. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, actually thinks it would not be off base to suppose that this child that Jesus called to himself was actually a little girl. Jesus sets the standard for heaven as the lowest of all status. Whoever becomes like a little child, he tells his disciples. I was in the airport a few weeks ago, and I was waiting for a, a flight, and across the breezeway, there was this family that was trying very, very hard to make it to their gate, okay? And it was a mom and a dad and four kids, and the four kids must have all been under the age of six, because they all looked pretty much the same height. And it was amazing. I probably watched them for 10 minutes, which is mildly creepy, but it was very enjoyable, okay? And each of the little kids would, like, start moving, and then would just, something would happen where one of them would start dancing, and then, you know, the sister would just, like, oh, my sister's dancing, I'm going to dance too. And the mom would be like, all right, you, like, over here, you over here. And then the kid in the stroller would just, like, start being like, no, get me out of this thing. At one point, the little boy that was walking just dropped his backpack and just kept walking, and the dad's like... No, 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 honey, we gotta, you got to put your backpack back on. But it was hilarious because these kids were just absent-mindedly just moving around, and the parents were way more patient than I would have been, way more patient. And on the one hand, they were acting childish, these kids, because there was a task at hand. Make it to gate 16A for Delta Flight so-and-so, and they were not performing. 
That was childish. Childish is not what Jesus is asking his disciples to be. But childlike? Unbeknownst to them, these kids were humbly dependent. Their survival was held together very evidently by their parents, and they trusted their parents' guidance. When Jesus is telling his disciples to be a child, he's saying, check your pride. You are humbly dependent in God's kingdom. And with that, the hierarchy the disciples were trying to fill in with their very own names was obliterated. The goal had changed from greatness to the acceptance of childlike dependence. Become a child. What had been complicated by their desire for to-dos and status and assurance was simplified because Jesus, he just wants humility. But there's a directive that follows becoming like a child. I'm going to read verse 5 again. Jesus says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Welcome, little children. In his book, What is Christianity? Adolf von Harnack wrote, Humility is not a virtue by itself. It is the opening up of the heart to God. This then is the source and origin of love of one's neighbor. Humility is the linchpin to a right relationship with God, but it's also the very beginning of our right relationship with others. And Jesus, in his discourse, now moves from exhorting his disciples to be humble to exhorting them to welcome the humble, the little ones, who we come to know, we come uh, to find out are every follower of Jesus. Now, the word for welcome in this verse actually means to take the hand of, which I think is so beautiful. Whoever takes the hand of a little child is actually taking the hand of Jesus. And I can't help but get this double image. As you reach down to take the hand of a dependent, trusting, bright-eyed child, you are declaring the fact that the hands that you, put, that you put your life in are big enough to hold both of you. As you learn to trust the hand of your Heavenly Father, it becomes second nature to take the hand of other humans who need to remember that they're dependent on Him too. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He goes on and explains, how do we care for these little ones? If we're going to take the hand of people and usher them into the kingdom of God with us, how do we do that? And we're going to keep reading at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That's really harsh language, but don't worry. We'll unpack it a little bit. Have you ever seen a toddler walk? Most of us. Okay, if you haven't seen a toddler walk, you need to get out more. Okay, okay, it's the best because they're basically tiny drunk adults. Now, they fall a lot. And most of the time, someone is there to pick them back up again, stand them on their feet so that they can keep moving in the right direction. But what if I was a toddler pusher? What if I just put out a finger, gave a little push to them when they were running, or put some obstacles where I knew that they were trying, where they were trying to go? Besides the fact that I would be an absolutely miserable human being, there is a 100% chance that I would win the battle and that they would end up falling. Okay, I can topple a toddler easily. Why? Because their balance is way more vulnerable than mine is. Jesus here is pointing out the obvious. 
temptation or stumbling blocks or things that cause people to stumble will come. They will come. Toddlers will always fall. But if you're the one that pushes the toddler over, you have another thing coming. Jesus uses really intense language here. It would be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and you thrown into the bottom of the sea than what will actually happen to you if you cause someone to stumble. That's what he's saying, okay? Jesus wouldn't be that extreme in his language if the threat of misleading other followers wasn't as real. Now, as someone who's part of a leadership team of a church, this immediately sinks my heart because I think, my goodness, if someone split my life open and aired everything about me in front of people, would it cause people to glorify God or would it cause people to stumble and walk away from him? And quite honestly, I think that all of us need to be asking that very same question. If someone were to come and cut your life open and split it out for everyone to see, would people glorify God because of what they found? Some of you, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure immediately. And you just feel a tremendous amount of pressure. Maybe you're a mom and you're thinking, I have kids whose faith I can destroy by my actions or by my negligence. Great. No pressure. Just tack that on to everything else that I'm feeling right now. Some of you are probably thinking, I'm the only Christian at my job. And you know what? Sometimes I don't have good days. Are you telling me that my actions can actually impact the faith of the people around me? Jesus, though, if you're feeling that pressure, he gives us an antidote to to creating stumbling blocks for people. We're going to pick up in verse 7. I promise it's not going to sound like an antidote at first, but it will. We're actually going to pick up in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. I promise that's actually good news, okay? (laughs) You know the best way to guard the faith of other believers or people who are just starting to learn about Jesus? Guard your own innocence. Guard your own innocence. Jesus says that we are to discard parts of us that cause us to sin. Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. Interestingly, this is the second time in the book of Matthew he said almost exactly the same thing. The first time was on, in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about lust and adultery. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, if you're lusting, stop it. He doesn't just say that. He says, He doesn't just say, hey, if you're sinning, just don't sin anymore. It's simple as that. He actually takes a step back from the sin to the source that is morally neutral. Eyes and hands are not inherently sinful. They're morally neutral. And I think just because of the hyperbolic language here, we have this tendency to kind of gloss over what Jesus is saying. Be willing to cut out of your life even things that are morally neutral in order to guard your innocence. That's what he's saying. The internet, morally neutral. Well, you can do a whole lot of evil on the internet. What would it look like to cut out things that that end up pulling you away from Jesus, even if by themselves they aren't evil? Things like food, alcohol, exercise, money, movies, music, social media, morally neutral. 
But if food is your coping mechanism when no one is looking, or social media is, is, leads you into rabbit holes of comparison, or you cling to your money out of a desire for control, what steps do you need to take to divorce yourself from the thing that is ending up causing you to fall away from Jesus? It's better to enter life maimed than to be thrown into eternal fire. That's literally what Jesus says in this passage. The discomfort you may feel cutting out something that is inconvenient is probably worth it. My best friend this past week, I was on the phone with her for a very long time. She lives in Fresno. Um, But she said to me, she said, if you don't want to slip, don't walk where it's slippery. It's a pretty simple explanation of it. Our purity of heart is no joke to Jesus. Now, if you're feeling the weight of conviction like I have been this past week, God has comforted me a ton as I've thought through this and prayed through this. First, he's reminded me that he knew that I was going to struggle with certain things when he chose me. Okay, so if you're thinking, my goodness, like, Lord, I am just, this is too much. This, you couldn't have possibly thought through this when you chose me. Absolutely not. He knew your story from beginning to end when he chose you. He knew every struggle, every stumbling block, every part of you. So take heart in that. But God has also been teaching me a lot about innocence. Because in the Western church, we learn about virtues, things like innocence and purity and wisdom and faith, all of those kinds of virtues, like they're treasures. And you get them when you're born, right? Like you, you have purity when you're born. You have innocence when you're born. You have this kind of like naivety or this uh, wisdom when you're born. But we aren't born virtuous. We were born sinners. So all this idea of us somehow losing things along the way is completely, that's not biblical at all because thankfully we lose our naivety as we grow up. But things like innocence, purity, wisdom, all of the virtues that end up getting cultivated in us, we don't lose them, we grow them. We grow them. And we grow them intentionally as we realize and admit that we're broken and that we need God. They're grown in us as we choose to honor him above the world. They grow in us as we choose humility. And honestly, they can be crushed when we don't. Humbly guard your innocence like your life depends on it because little ones are watching. But the second way we care for little ones or followers of Jesus, we humbly love the wanderer because little ones matter to God. I'm going to keep reading in verse verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, He is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now the word despise in verse 10 is actually an interesting translation choice here. And it's kind of lost on me if I'm honest. Because when I use the word despise, I normally am using it to exaggerate. And uh, it's normally to describe things like baby carrots or cherry medicine or horror movies or my something I really despise or I'd say I despise is making multiple trips to the car to get grocery bags like I'm one of the people that tries to get all of them in one trip okay so I don't use the word despise in the way that Jesus is talking here I don't use it 
about people. So when Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones, I can easily think, okay, I'm not going to despise anybody. That's fine. And then that's the end of my line of conviction. But another way to translate the Greek word here is to think less of. Do not think less of even one of these little ones. So when suddenly the conviction is back. (laughs) We live in a place that is marked by people who think highly of themselves. And if we're honest, we think pretty highly of ourselves too. We do. We love achievement and we love boasting about it. Humbly, of course. Like we do this like little humble, humble brags, you know. People do humble brags all the time. We love that we're busy, okay? We brag about the fact that we're busy. We love that we're tired because we're so busy and so important, and we talk about that all the time. Turns out that uh, we actually think pretty highly of ourselves, and then when, uh, when someone actually comes along and we automatically either think that they're better than us or that they're less than us, it becomes very easy to despise or to think less of them because it assaults our pride. But I love the evidence of the, port, of the importance of each of God's children here. God is saying, do not despise even one. So that person that just gets on your nerves, that person who, who, like, you really, honestly, if you're really honest with yourself, you wish you were like, but you just can't actually be like them because you weren't made to be like them, that person that causes you a ton of envy, do not despise even that person. Jesus says here that each little one has an angel looking at the face of God constantly. Each of them in the throne room has an angel looking at the face of God, which I think emphasizes how important each and every one of God's little ones actually are. Now, this passage isn't about guardian angels. So before you go down that road, what Jesus is alluding to here is actually an Old Testament description of the throne room, which is found in, uh, which is found in the book of Isaiah. No, it's found in, oh my goodness, I lost my place. Um, but basically, the, there's this throne room scene in Isaiah where heavenly beings in the throne room had sets of wings. And these wings were used to cover the face of these beings they were, they were used to cover the eyes of these beings because nobody can look straight at the face of God. God's holiness was too much for them. But the angels of God's children, they're unshielded. And the, they gaze upon God in all of his fullness. Don't despise one of these little ones because these little ones are indescribably valuable to God and they can see him face to face. What if we started thinking about people like that? the people who bother us, the people who irritate us, the people who we envy, the people who we're tempted to think less of when we walk down Valencia or we walk down Mission who are sitting on the side of the road. That person may have an angel in heaven staring in wonder at the face of God because God values that person so deeply. It changes things. It changes the way that we see people. But Jesus then moves into this metaphor And this metaphor is familiar to many of us. He talks about this shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to pursue the one that wanders off. And I've always read this passage like, wow, that's so nice. That shepherd, he left all of those sheep to go find the one. What a remarkably wonderful shepherd. That's just great. 
But Jesus is not saying it like that. He's actually kind of snarky in this passage. He's saying, will he not leave the 99 in pursuit of the one? In other words, duh, he's going to pursue the one. Shepherds don't let their sheep disappear. That's just the way it is. If you do, you're a bad shepherd. And if that's the case for a shepherd going after the one, pursuing the one, how much more so does, is God going to pursue the one who is infinitely valuable to him? God's kind of a perfectionist. 99 is not going to cut it. He's going to chase after that one because that one is individually and uniquely valuable to him. And if you are here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I don't even know what I think about God anymore. This has just been such a weird season. Like faith, what does it even mean? What am I, what am I even doing here? Or maybe you're thinking, I've wandered so far from where I once was. There is no way that God's going to find me. I have to find my way back myself. Or even if you're internally mocking the thought that God is actually going to come after you, I dare you to ask him. I dare you to ask him to come find you. Because he doesn't fail, and he won't fail if you ask him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my sheep. And if he knows the most intimate details of your life, your thought patterns, your mess, your triumphs, and all the things that you keep thinking about that you wish you didn't think about anymore, if he knows all of that, and still he not only pursues you, but he warns everyone else not to mess with you, how valuable must you be to him? Little ones matter to God. Humbly love the wanderer. Now, there's been this, I'm going to just interject something here. There's been, there's this elephant in the room. Whenever I talk, or it's really hard to talk about children right now and not talk about what's been going on the past couple of months at the border. And if your first thought when I brought this up is which president or which law is to blame or whether or not those kids came to this country legally, I think we're missing the point of this whole passage. Because God's little ones are valuable, and who's to blame is of very little consequence to him. The vulnerable, valuable, teachable hearts of those kids are what's valuable to him. The vulnerable are who are valuable to him. In this situation right now, I don't know exactly how to tangibly help, but I do know that we serve a God who sees each and every one of those little ones and knows them intimately. And they have angels in heaven who are seeing his face right now. Church, even in times when we think, my goodness, how are we supposed to respond to things like this? Especially when we hear messages about blame and about laws and about the way that people are responding. Let's be a people who put our hearts on the line in prayer for people who are on the margins. Because God is just. And he pursues the little ones that the world forgets. Little ones matter to God humbly love the wanderer. But that's not how Jesus ends everything. The last way we are to welcome the little ones is to correct them. Little ones are lonely. I'm going to pick up in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, this is the church discipline passage that people quote all the time. And in it, Jesus gives very specific steps to explain how to deal with your brothers or sisters or other believers who are doing things that are wrong or that you see leading them or other people away from him. He says, first, address your brother or sister one-on-one. Tell them the truth in hopes that the truth is going to actually bring them back into the fold. If that doesn't work, try again and take a few more witnesses with you to monitor the discourse. And I believe he's actually saying here the reason witnesses are so important is to guard your integrity and to guard the integrity of the person you're accusing. And then if that doesn't work, bring it to the church and tell the church for the sake of the holiness of the church as a whole. And then if they actually don't listen to that, then treat them as a non-believer. Now, it would be really easy to spend a whole sermon series on church discipline, especially because we often have a very, very, very negative understanding of what discipline actually means. Because in our Western mindsets, often discipline and grace are incompatible. Okay? When it's oftentimes like when you think about discipline, you think, you know what, but Jesus is just all grace. He's all grace. That is true. He is all grace, but he's also he's the author of grace, actually. But He doesn't agree with that because grace actually cannot exist without discipline. And before we tense up about this, I want to take a couple of principles from this that explain the importance of the practice of discipline, but also the importance of our heart posture in the middle of it. First, the reason that that discipline is so important and that we need each other to discipline us and we need to discipline each other or receive correction is because we are valuable to God. If our lives didn't matter to God, we wouldn't have to worry about being corrected or living in a certain way or loving people well because it wouldn't matter. It absolutely would not matter. But just like a child needs a parent to tell them to not only eat what tastes good or to stay away from danger, we need each other to point out areas of our lives that are misleading us. And we do that because we value each other. Second, we point out areas of need because forgiveness and reconciliation produce joy. When someone erases your debt, it's a pretty joyful experience. Imagine for a second somebody coming up to you and saying, I just paid off your mortgage. Or, you know what, you don't have to pay rent for the next year. Imagine the feeling that that would, that would give you. Now, some of you might say, you think like, oh man, well... I can't believe I was in debt. I can't believe I was ever in debt. That's probably not the way that you would respond. If somebody paid off your mortgage, you'd be like, wow, I am no longer in debt. That is amazing. That's the way that you would feel. Well, the same thing is true with our spiritual debt and our, 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 the times where we get misled away from Jesus. When we get washed by Christ's grace, uh, our debts are being washed away. And we can experience grace and reconciliation and love And ultimately, we become more joyful, more joyful. That's the reason that we correct each other, is because we want all of us to experience the joy of reconciliation. But third, we also correct each other because Jesus commands us to. And that's basically, that's 
this part that I'm going to say about that. Yeah, it's true. Now, some of you are in here thinking, you know what? This is where the whole church gets it all wrong. This is where the church messes up. People go correcting each other willy-nilly and get all legalistic. If that's you and you're thinking that, hold on a second. Or if you're in here thinking, wow, there are about 50 people I really can't wait to correct as soon as I leave service, okay? Hold on, okay? Because, because why we correct is really important. But it is equally, if not more important, that we watch how we correct. How we correct. And Jesus is pretty clear here. First, we do it incrementally. We start one-on-one. Why? Because our goal is always to love the other person well and never to shame them. If you think, if you're pridefully going into a situation where you have to correct somebody, I guarantee you it's not going to go well. And here again, we see why without humility, we're going to miss this entirely because if you don't go into a correcting a situation where you have to bring the truth to somebody, if you go into it without humility, humility that produces love, no joy, only pain is going to come through the correction. It's just the way that it is. But second, we do it directly. You know what kills a church faster than anything else? Gossip. Gossip kills churches. Telling someone to tell someone else something that you should be telling them to their face or telling them in love to their face is not holy correction. It's unholy gossip. I heard a pastor on the radio say one time, if you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, you shouldn't be talking about it. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. (laughs) And third, we correct each other gracefully. All discipline or accountability or calling out or whatever you want to call it should be done in the hopes of people being drawn deeper into a relationship with Jesus. We deal with sin in each other head on knowing that we want others to deal with our mistakes head on too because one day we're going to be the one who needs correction because we're just as fallen as everybody else. And if you think you won't need correcting, you need to become a child. Last, but certainly not least, we correct each other confidently. Jesus knew that when people get corrected, they tend to not take it super well, okay? And most of the time when you actually correct somebody, unless you've had some really wonderful experiences, most of the time the response that people give and that, you know, that flinch moment where they respond to you is, who do you think you are, God? Something along those lines. That's why Jesus includes this little addendum at the end of the passage. He says, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Where two or more are gathered, there I will be. If you have checked yourself, and you have prayed, and you have included the right people in the conversation, not the people you want in the conversation, the right people in the conversation, You can stand in confident knowledge that God is standing with you. You are not God, but he's using you. Little ones are learning. Humbly correct them. Humbly correct them. So, (laughs) how do we sum all of this up, all of this kingdom language? It's pretty simple. Become a child. Welcome God's children pretty much sums it all up. It's that simple and it's that difficult all at the same time. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
the disciples asked him. The disciples didn't know then that the pride they were showing in asking the question was pride that Jesus was going to die on the cross for so that they could become children in that very kingdom. That's really the beauty of all this. The one who calls us to be dependent on him like little children paid for every speck of our pride and sin on the cross. As we transition out of this this morning, um, I'm actually going to invite the prayer team back up. Um, If something in you is just stirring and maybe you just want to pray through something that's going on in your heart, the prayer team would love to pray with you. But I'm going to leave everyone with this challenge. Where in your life do you need to become a child? Where does the grace of Jesus need to wash over your pride? Where do you need to remember that you are humbly dependent on Christ? And where in your life is God asking you to take the hand of another of his little children in love? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbly dependent on you for everything, Lord. You made us, you hold our very beings together, you hold our existence together, and Lord, we just cast off this notion this morning that we're the ones who are in control, because ultimately, God, you are. Father, I pray this morning that each and every one of us can come to see the areas of our hearts that are not only leading us away from you, but God, that you just want to take away so that we can depend on you more. Father, examine us today. Examine us this week. Show us the places where we need to surrender our own will in honor of yours. Show us the places where we have fallen away or even places in our life where we're causing other people to stumble. God, I pray that you would correct us and humbly and gently Um, move us back into a right relationship with you. And Lord, for the people in this room who are thinking that they are too far from you, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that they are valuable to you. And not just valuable, like if you get lost, you can be replaced, God. Infinitely valuable. The kind of valuable where you will search and find. The kind of valuable where you're not just going to let somebody go without being found. Lord, I pray that you would remind every single one of us that we aren't the 99. We are the one. We are the one that you have come to find. Um, This morning, Father, I just pray you would be in this place. Draw us into deeper relationship with you and remind us again and again and again that you love us. Put all this in the hands of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.